Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 122, The Child. Welcome in to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on our show, we look at another show, Star Trek to be exact, and each week we pick it apart. We like to put it on the examination table to see what makes it tick. This week, we welcome a bouncing baby season two, kicked off by The Child. And you know, if you wanted to send us notes of congratulation, knitted booties, photo albums, and rattles, there is a way to do that. Yes, as a matter of fact, there is, John, several ways, actually. Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, where the handle is Mission Log Pod. People can call us, 323-522-5641. They can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. We do, of course, have a website we would love for you to check out. It's where our discovered documents and all sorts of other stuff ends up, missionlogpodcast.com. Then we have two other places we would love for you to check out online, too, trekmovie.com and trekfm. That's trek.fm. Both of those carry Mission Log. Remember, anything you do send us, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. I will be curious to see how you get booties through Twitter, though. Hmm. Yeah, yeah you, you, you don't want to know. I think you just opened yourself up for something there, Ken. <laughs> no, no, booties. It's, oh, it's, right. For, for the kid. For the kid right. that we're talking about. For the kid, about. for the yeah, child. I don't know. Is... Yeah. Yeah, we can talk about getting booty through Twitter another time. Okay. Or not. <laughs> I'll tell you what let's talk about instead, because I know this is one of your favorite things. And here we are on, on, the, on the dawn of a brand new season. Uh, there must be a ton of trivia. Oh, Ken, and how. Um, you know what? Uh, for trivia, it, it's interesting because we always have to leave some things out. And sometimes we focus on, uh, you know, actors or directors or a story or whatever. But, but right now, it's really important that we focus on the transition from season one to season two. A lot has changed. And uh, we are going to see more changes come about as we go along here. Um, most important thing to note, Maurice Hurley is now the head writer. Now, we talked about the shakeups happening toward the end of season one with the ousting of Robert Lewin. Um, a long several month period, you know, we had the exit of David Gerald, Tracy Torme, Hannah Louise Shear, DC Fontana, who was only kind of a blip there at the beginning of season one. Many cited differences with Gene and especially with Gene's lawyer. And uh, we have to mention the departure of Gates McFadden as Dr. Crusher. It's a different situation from the one with Denise Crosby leaving as Lieutenant Yar. There is indication that McFadden was also not getting along with some of the production staff and vocal about disagreement with stories, especially with Maurice Hurley. And uh, he is the one who led to her departure in a uh, you're fired slash I quit kind of situation. Now, Jean declined to kill her off, uh, maybe opening the door for her to come back. Uh, but rather, lines were written to explain her absence. And don't forget, uh, Ken, that we also left season one with a writer's strike in full bloom. So the premiere of season two occurred in November of 1988, a little bit behind what was the usual start for fall TV. Thus, we only get 22 episodes this time around rather than the 26 hours we had before, including that two hour premiere. The strike didn't end until August of 1988. So can I ask you? 
What do you do when you're out of scripts? You look for old scripts. The child was rewritten from a script originally intended for Star Trek Phase 2 with the Deanna Troy character subbing for Lieutenant Ilea. And uh, good news for Marina Sirtis, since she was the only remaining of the core female characters from Season 1. Um, the original pitch was by Jaron Summers and scripted by John Povel. You might remember us talking about him in the uh, Phase 2 slash motion picture era. Now, uh, Maurice Hurley revised the script to fit Next Generation, and you can pick up Judy and Gar's book if you want to read the original script. That would be Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, who we talked to right here on our show. Uh, so, with Gates gone, we got a new doctor played by Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, actually, okay, we didn't. Um, uh, but that is what she wanted to do. Really? Um, yeah, famously, Whoopi is a fan of Star Trek. And I, I think everybody kind of knows this story, that she contacted the production staff. She was friends with LeVar Burton. And she kind of got LeVar to put in the word for her, and they gave her a call. And um, she she just wanted to be on the show. She got a six-episode commitment at the beginning uh, for the season, just for season two. But yeah, she wanted to be the doctor. Uh, but no, instead they created the role of Guinan for her. You know, I don't remember whether I was happy or upset that Whoopi Goldberg was going to be on Star Trek. I do remember distinctly thinking, though, well, must be nice. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you yeah, just go, yeah. I want to be on that show. And boom, Hollywood's like, well, let, let, let's write a part for you then, because of course, if you want. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I, I don't remember being either happy or disappointed. I was just a little perplexed. I, I was just sort of thinking, well, this isn't a show that has big stars mm -hmm. as regular cast. But they became stars. Well, LeVar Burton was, he was known. Well, sure, but he was no whoopee. Well, no, that's true. Who was at the time, though? I mean, Who was? Like, yeah, I mean, I mean, it would be like Eddie Murphy calling and saying, "I want to be in a Star Trek something." I mean, that's I mean, that's crazy. that's like that level of of, of celebrity, actually. And also, yeah. I mean, she, I mean, she had done the color purple, but I mean, she was primarily thought of as a comedian at that point. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the fact that she didn't turn up and start cracking wise the second she hit the screen must have been kind of uh, surprising for some people as well. But but exactly. but we digress. We do. We do just a little bit. Um, we, we have uh, a welcome back here to Diana Muldaur, who, of course, uh, we praised for her appearances in the original series Return to Tomorrow, in which she portrayed Dr. Anne Mulhall, and in Is There in Truth No Beauty, in which she played Dr. Miranda Jones. Um, we also have a guest star here from veteran character actor Seymour Castle. He is playing Dr. Hester Delt. And, uh, and Ken, I know that uh, you were very excited about this. A big, big welcome back to the Regular One Space Station from the Wrath of Khan, which actually premiered in a different uh, orientation in the motion picture. And uh, we will see it again. Forgive me, but I am a bit worried. I am afraid season 2 of The Next Generation has hit one of the television warning posts. One of the main characters is having a baby. Prologue. The Enterprise and the Repulse are waving bye-bye to each other, the Repulse having sent someone or something over by shuttle on the deep space hookup. A bearded Commander Riker says the thanks and see you laters. 
the exchange observed by Lieutenant Worf resplendent in his gold uniform. And not quite as young as he once was, Wesley Crusher, minus the rainbow-bright piping, tells Riker they're ready to move. In the captain's ready room, a gold-wearing Geordi LaForge, now chief engineer of the Enterprise, is telling Captain Picard about the containment units he's constructing. It's unclear what they'll be moving or why, but it is deadly. 512 little units held by one big unit. Geordi says it's that big unit that will keep the crew alive. Riker tells the captain that Dr. Pulaski is aboard. Who's he? Number one hits the bridge and tells Ensign Crusher to head toward Odette 9. As he does, a small point of light swoops into the Enterprise. Data picks it up on sensors, but only as an anomalous energy reading. A couple of crew members think they see or hear something, but don't bother telling anybody. Whatever it is finds its way to the quarters of a sleeping Counselor Troy. It crawls under the covers with her, and she wakes up just in time to watch the opening credits. Act 1. We know more about the containment field Geordi was building. There's an unidentified plasma plague in the Rachelis system. The Enterprise is to pick up specimen of the plague at Odette 9, think of it as the CDC, and take it to Rachelis, where it's hopeful an antidote can be made. Picard tells Data that once the specimen are on board, he and Dr. Pulaski are to go through them. Hey, where is that guy anyway? Oh, that gal. Where is she anyway? Riker says she's not reported in. A call to sickbay reveals that the good doctor is in 10 Ford. Yeah, I don't know either. But Picard heads that way to find her. On the turbo lift, there is an awkward conversation between Picard and Ensign Crusher. Crusher says it'll be hard to leave the Enterprise. Picard says that makes sense, just as it was hard for Wesley's mother, Dr. Beverly Crusher, to become the head of Starfleet Medical. Still, that's life in Starfleet. Arriving at his destination, it turns out 10 Ford is a bar. And suddenly, I know which Enterprise I want to serve on. The bartender, Guinan, directs Picard to Pulaski, to whom Picard is ready to read the riot act. But she stops him cold, saying, there's something the captain should hear. She's sitting with Counselor Troy, who, hang on to your hats, is pregnant. We don't find that out until we're in the captain's ready room with Picard, Pulaski, Chief Security Officer Worf, Lieutenant Commander Data, and Riker. Riker, Troy's ex-boyfriend, is like, baby! Pulaski says, cool it, cowboy, this is a really weird pregnancy. She got pregnant last night and is about three months along. At this rate, she'll have the baby sometime tomorrow, not ten months from now, which would be the normal for a betazoid. Riker, Troy's ex-boyfriend, is like, baby, who's a daddy? Troy says she was visited by a presence in her sleep. Picard says... Yeah, an unknown life form is breeding right now inside Counselor Troy. Riker, Troy's ex-boyfriend, is like, Baby, who's a daddy? Pulaski says examination shows a half-human, half-betazoid child, just like Troy. Security Officer Worf says, If it can breed, we can kill it. Which is obviously what we have to do. For the safety of ship and crew. Data says, Whoa, kill it! Let's let it grow and study it. Worf says they can study it after it's aborted. The only one not saying anything so far is Troy. When she finally does, she pulls a Madonna. She's made up her mind. She's keeping her baby. Well, says Picard, that's that. Act 2. The Enterprise arrives at Odette 9 and is getting ready to get the plague samples. Getting ready to get the plague samples. Counselor Troy is way pregnant at this point. She should be uncomfortable, but... 
she's not. Lieutenant Commander Hester Delt, the guy from ODET-9 overseeing the plague samples, makes contact. He wants to look over the containment field before bringing 512 samples of death aboard. Also, he'll tell them what he's bringing. He takes a long time, like 14 hours, to inspect the containment field. He has to be sure there will be no growth during transport. Meanwhile, Counselor Troy has gone into labor. Data will stay with Troy throughout the delivery. Her choice, though Pulaski doesn't get it. There will also be a security detail on hand. Captain's orders. Turns out Troy's labor is not very laborious. Quick and totally painless. Which is not normal for a Betazoid. And just like that, a perfectly healthy baby boy. Named Ian Andrew, after Troy's father. Mother and baby are ridiculously fine. Pulaski goes to the bridge to talk to the captain. So, Troy is fine the next day. Really fine. Too fine. Like, if Pulaski examined her now, it would be as if she had never had a baby, let alone 24 hours ago. Picard and Pulaski go to visit Troy, who does not have a baby. She's got a four-year-old. Well, he's 12 hours old, but he's a walking, talking four-year-old. He says hello to Picard and tells him not to worry. Everything is okay. Act 3. Ian is now eight. I mean, he's not, but he is. They've still not started taking on the plague samples yet. Dr. Pulaski says she and Data are still going over what's um, being... Ken. Pro- Ken, what? it's Data. What? His name. You said data. It's data. What's the difference? One is his name. The other is not. (laughs) Pulaski thinks that's just kooky. Anyway, they're ready to take on the plague samples. Just a reminder from Pulaski. If anything goes wrong here, everybody dies. Everybody. Elsewhere, Ian and a bunch of other kids are playing with puppies. The teacher says it seems like Ian has grown just since Troy dropped him off. Pulaski and Picard stop by Troy's quarters to check in on mother and child. Ian was just about to have his dinner. The kid sticks his finger in hot soup intentionally, as if he just wanted the experience of burning himself. Picard asks Ian point-blank why he's there, as a being, on the Enterprise. After a bit of confusion, he says he's not ready to tell them yet. Troy says the answer is sort of locked away in the developing child. When he develops enough, he'll be able to tell them. With the specimen finally on the ship, the Enterprise heads to Richelis 6. In transit, Ensign Crusher visits 10 Ford. He doesn't want anything to drink, though. He just wants to look out the window. Guinan keeps offering him drinks. Finally, Crusher's like, Why do you keep offering me drinks? Guinan says it's what people expect of her. Come on, she's a bartender. She does what's expected. Just like Crusher's leaving the Enterprise, as he's expected. Gives him something to think about. In the cargo hold, uh uh-oh, alarms, not good. There's a malfunction in the containment area, really not good. We'll find out how really not good after this. Act 4. Remember how there was supposed to be no growth among the plague specimen? Well, there is. LaForge can't figure it out. Riker, Data, and Pulaski head down to see if they can help. In 10 Ford, we're getting to know Guinan. Well, we're getting to know that no one knows a lot about Guinan. But she's helped Wes, so she's cool. He heads to the bridge. In the cargo hold, no one can figure out what's wrong with the containment module. 
They can't destroy it. They can't jettison it into space for some inadequately explored reason. Hester Delt says, They're just going to die. Riker says they should prepare for saucer separation. There's a rare sort of radiation causing the specimen to grow. Pulaski says only Eichner radiation can do that. Delt says he's picking up a source of Eichner radiation, though there hadn't been one before. In Troy's quarters, Ian says he's picking up the worry felt by the crow. It's not about him. It's about the specimen. But he says he is the cause. He has to leave now, or it'll be bad for everyone. Leave? Troy realizes he means he's about to die. She calls for the doctor as we had to break. Act 5. Ian is unconscious. Pulaski says he's dying. Data says Ian is the source of the Eichner radiation. And he's dead. And suddenly he's all goodness and light, like that point of light that had flown into the ship in the prologue. He sort of sits in Troy's hand for a moment. Then he's gone. LaForge calls to say the containment field is stabilized. The ship is out of danger. Troy explains about Ian. When they passed in space, he, or it, was curious about humans. It decided the best way to find out about them was to become one, to live among them. It meant them no harm. Pulaski, Data, and Riker leave Troy to grieve. Arriving at Rochella 6, the Enterprise is finally rid of the plague. Fingers crossed the guys and gals at Tango Sierra can find a cure. In the captain's ready room, Wesley Crusher asks to stay aboard the Enterprise. Picard says it's cool with him, if his mother says it's okay. Riker and the rest of the crew will guide his development, and the next season of The Next Generation is officially underway. The End Ken, you made it through the whole thing without saying Tinkerbell once. Well, you know, I was going to say, actually, I meant to do it in trivia. I forgot about that. It's really good to see her getting work outside of a Peter Pan <laughs> thing. Of course, she has right. gone on to her own series of, of um, what are they, like fairy adventures or something? I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah straight to video. Straight to video stuff. Well, yeah, they yeah. count, but yeah, they're not. <laughs> anyway, it was good to see her get some work there. Yeah. Although I'm really glad that Picard didn't turn to us at the end or Troy and say, everybody at home, if you clap really hard, then Ian won't have to leave. Right, right. Yeah, seen it. That too. Wow. Yeah. Hello, season two with your different feel. Um, <laughs> we. I, I mean, yeah. You, you got the Riker beard, which could have gotten its own segment in trivia. But um, <laughs> you know, some of the other things that we that we should point out. Yeah, you know, we got the new lounge with a bartender, and that's just such a cool sort of iconic thing on the Enterprise. Now, it, it, it's like, how do we even get through season one without it? Um, season one of se- Next Gen or season one of TOS? Because I mean, really, we know they have bars in the original series, but they don't have them on the Enterprise. Yeah, right. They've got horrible, horrible, boring rec rooms on the Enterprise. It's not until you get to the cartoon that there's anything fun to do on the Enterprise. (laughs) Exactly. Well, except for the Christmas party, but we don't talk about that. We only hear about the Christmas party, though. We don't know. Yeah. Um, We got new seats on the bridge. So they're not, you know, reclining at the common op station. Uh, that sounds pretty good. New uniform on Wesley, as you pointed out. We got that new thing on Worf, you know, on top of the uniform. He just looks cool. That um, was new, wasn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, and I like how in the opening of the episode, everything is just sort of matter of fact. Like you have this sort of wandering camera going through the bridge after we leave the, uh, uh, the, the shuttle bay. And that first shot on the bridge, you start tight, and then the camera just sort of moves around. Oh, look, here's this guy in a new uniform. Oh, look, here's this guy with a beard. 
you know, and you just sort right. of take it all in. Right. It's uh, it's really nicely done. And actually, throughout the whole episode, I thought there was a lot of great camera movement. Um, it shows that they, well, clearly had a bit of time and uh, and a bit of creativity. And I like uh, how we introduced Dr. Pulaski. Um, the, you know, just from the get-go, she's kind of a little more vibrant slash abrasive than uh, Dr. Crusher has been so mm-hmm. far, had been. Um, for us to open with her sort of breaking protocol is a cool thing to do. Well, breaking protocol, but straight down to business. We don't actually know what 10 Ford is initially. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're sort of given to understand that that's probably not the first place she should have gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if she were going there just for the normal reason, but we don't know what the normal reason is until Picard gets there. Um, so she's breaking protocol, but with a cause, at yeah. least at least at that point. Although she was on board for a few hours, right? Yeah. Right. So I mean, who knows? Maybe she was already in ten four, and then Troy wandered in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, as long as you're here, Doctor. Yeah, you know, uh, because I mean, she's got a sick bay, and and Troy has offices and quarters, and she's got quarters, but they're going to go meet in the bar to talk about the fact that she's pregnant. Yeah, that's what you do. I guess yeah. so. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the, uh, the the space station model that mm-hmm. got used from the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan. And I know that somebody will write in and their exact words will be, I can't believe you didn't mention. So I'm going to mention it now. The Excelsior model that yeah. we see the opening shot um, as the other ship pulled up alongside the Enterprise. Very nice looking. It really, it really is interesting to see the two of them side by side because I think when we were doing Star Trek three. We talked about how much the Excelsior looked like uh, the Enterprise 1701D. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to see them side by side, it's like, oh, yeah, they just like basically slimmed the Excelsior down a bit. Right, right. To make the Enterprise uh, D. It's very cool. And, um, wow, finally, Ken, it, it's a big day. Mm. We have a chief engineer. We've had the chief engineer, dude. We've had several. I'm actually kind of, <laughs> we, I'm kind of bummed because I really like Jordi LaForge, and now I'm guessing he's on for maybe three more episodes, right? Oh, yeah, right. Because <laughs> that's yeah. the deal. Once you're chief engineer, uh, you should pretty much be checking the back pages of Variety for your next gig. Oh, your days are numbered. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. I don't know. Maybe he'll survive. Um, You know, it... it that scene with uh, Picard talking to Wesley in the turbo lift, I thought that was played all wrong. Hmm. It was so somber. Like there, there are a lot of emotions that could have been at play there. It could have been awkward. It could have been kind of cool, detached professionalism because we know that Picard isn't good with kids. Uh, it, certainly not comforting. It, it just felt somber like the moment crusher got into the turbo lift and like his head is down and the the eyes are kind of you know darting around on the floor it just was a weird scene to me and i know they're trying to make it serious it was a weird serious came across wrong it was weird but it didn't strike me as bad because there's a whole lot going on there Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know how you would have played it differently. I mean, because here's the thing. Okay, so Picard is uncomfortable with kids, right? And yeah. he's always intimidated Crusher. I mean, they've had a couple of moments, but I mean, Crusher is, I mean, every time he sees Picard, he's intimidated by him, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Picard's not just standing there in a turbo lift with a kid and he's uncomfortable with kids. Picard is standing in the turbo lift with somebody who could have been his child. Had things yeah. gone differently, this could have been his child because we know as horrible as an episode as the naked now was Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> we know that Picard has feelings for Crusher. And then we've come to know later that, I mean, it really seems like the indication is the only reason Picard, and I guess we know this from conspiracy, right? The only reason Picard and Crusher didn't get together all those years ago is because she had already met Jack. They weren't mm-hmm. married yet, but she had already met Jack by the time Picard met her, right? Right, of course. So, I mean, he's standing there, honestly, with his alternate timeline. Right, right. <laughs> In right. some ways, yeah. you know? And his alternate timeline is about to take off, and he's never known how to deal with them in the first place. And now, oh, God, is the kid going to cry about it? I don't even, oh, I don't even like kids to begin with. I mean, to me, it didn't actually feel as weird as it felt to you. It felt like, well, I mean, see, it, it was but, but, that, but that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, but that's what I mean, because everything that you're describing is that great backstory that informs that scene. Right. And it just felt like the scene dragged down. Like, it, it just, it, <laughs> it, that, there was a moment. There, there was a potential for a great moment there, yeah. whether you played it awkward, whether you played it comforting, whatever. But it just felt like they were going to a funeral. The pacing, you know? the pacing was weird, but you see, I feel, yeah. I feel like all the way through, it was like a funeral for uh, Crusher until he finally decides he's gonna, he's gonna, you know, mm-hmm. break, break out of expectations and stay. I mean, I think he's mourning his his passing from the Enterprise. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. It didn't strike me as that odd. I, I'm so glad that you mentioned it in your wrap up. The uh, the Riker reaction <laughs> to Deanna being pregnant <laughs> because it, at first it struck me as like, wow, he's he's really kind of being a jerk. But then I just felt like, you know, I'm glad we have this moment at this conference table where this guy it, is it, like there's voices going on. But he's just thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> what do you no, No, stop again. It's that we're not having the conversation. Who got you pregnant? Right. Why are you pregnant? How exactly. did that happen? It was great. Mine, it was great. Mine. Mine. <laughs> Scientific curiosity out the window. And he's in his own world. At yeah. That moment. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and similarly, uh, somebody in their own world, Data, his reaction to Deanna's delivery. Sometimes you push Data a little bit to the comedic extreme or the annoying comedic extreme. But I thought that was actually played correctly with mm-hmm. him just firing off every question that popped into his head, trying to take in all the information of what was happening in front of him. Yeah, that was kind of nice. And his questions are actually particularly interesting for Troy because, you know, what with her being Betazoid. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's asking, like, you know, do you sense the do you sense the baby? Does the baby send to you? Mm-hmm. And that's actually a great question for her in particular. Yeah. 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 Um, and speaking of babies, you know, it, just when it comes down to it, if you want to make a story creepy or creepier, just put in a creepy child. Put in a, uh, a precocious kid who stares straight through you and says things that he shouldn't be able to say. Um, it works for horror movies and it worked for this. All right. So, if you say on. so. I think he was a little cute. I, he was cute. But, you know, if you walked into a room with a kid who'd only been a few hours before and he started talking to you. Yeah. You would be see, you would be climbing the walls. You would be so creeped out. That's yeah. true. And uh, and let's talk a little bit about Pulaski because um, here we introduce this little bit of prejudice slash discomfort with data. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's interesting to me because um, uh, David Gerald has gone on the record saying that he is the one who suggested different names for the Data character, just so there wouldn't be confusion. And, and he also thought it was a little hokey 
to call, oh, he, he's an android, he's a computer, he's data, he is data incarnate. Um, well, we had somebody point out to us, though, and I don't know if we ever addressed it, but we had somebody point out in an email, there's actually a great reason for calling him data Yes, when you're going to call his brother Lore. Right. Because his brother is, 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 is fiction and story and rumor, and data is you know just the facts, sir. Right. Kind of thing. Right. So it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Do we go ahead and address... Do we address now the, the, the similarities between Pulaski and McCoy, or do we wait until they're more pronounced? Because there are things, there are things that are similar about them. I mean, there's a, there's, I can't remember how soon we see it. And well, it's I, been I think so long since I have it. seen it. But yeah. there is, there's a similarity. There's a, there's a Pulaski data similarity to sort of some of the more comedic moments between uh, Bones and uh, Spock. Mm-hmm. Just the whole you unfeeling whatever. Yeah. Except where Bones was castigating Spock for that. Uh, Pulaski's just like, huh, crazy machine. Right. You know, kind of right. thing. No, it's worth pointing out now because it, it is apparent now and it will become more apparent as we go along. You know, we're, we're not going to sit here and spoil a particular storyline, but just to say, yeah, they, they start out with this character having that kind of abrasive you know, grudgingly respectful <laughs> relationship. Yeah. Um, and, and that will continue. Down to know, not so. even wanting to use the transporter, though, right? Because that's mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what was coming over from the um, Repulse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. What's up with that as a name for a ship? I understand yeah. it's, they're, 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 they're sending back, they're repulsing, they're, they're moving away, whatever is bad. Yeah. But all I can think of is like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll also point out that uh, if there were any uh, anything holding you back from wanting to be on the Enterprise, now we know that they have puppies. Um, puppies in a bar, dude. Seriously. Puppies and a bar <laughs> on the Enterprise. Greatest starship ever. <laughs> but but I don't want to bring us down because now, now I'm really worried about the puppies on the Enterprise. Because all I could think then was where did they come from and what will happen to them? Because... If I'm not mistaken, in any upcoming episode of Next Generation, we don't see full-grown uh, Golden Retrievers running around the decks of the Enterprise. Um, and I'm also a little worried that Captain Picard has never played with puppies. Ever. Like, he doesn't even remember that one day when he was eight years old yeah. and somebody showed him a puppy. He's like, nope, nope, yeah. never seen him. Let's go ahead and take care of the puppies right now. There's also a kid. But that, that sounded a little ominous. Well, no, there's also a kid sitting there playing with floating blocks. Yeah. My assumption is the floating blocks are not real, but they're 3D, maybe holographic representations. Mm-hmm. My assumption is the same for the puppies. I hope so. That we're dealing with sort of, you know, holodeck type puppies, but with a portable hollow whatever thing. Hello. So, so, you know, <laughs> you can play with puppies and not worry about the mess and not worry about the cleanup and not worry about where you're going to keep all these dogs. Because where they get all the dogs, as you say, and then what happens to them later? Hey, maybe they store them in the transporter buffer. <laughs> just, just get out the puppies whenever you They're want. Eternal puppies, dude. That's actually, oh, oh. Sounds like a band name too. Eternal puppies. Yeah. <laughs> Sad that Ken missed the obvious Tinkerbell reference in this show. I am also a bit disappointed that he did not slide in some sort of reference tying the light being that was Ian to the term Firefly. So, in this episode, we have an A plot and we have a B plot. They dovetail nicely. 
What we don't have is sort of a, you know, save the whales, um, don't be racist kind of thing. But I do feel like there are lots of little uh, sort of uh, um, topics worth discussing Mm -hmm. in this episode. Some little, some big. Uh, There is a a maybe two minutes tops message from Pulaski uh, that basically boils down to don't mess with Mother Nature. Um, she and Data are going through all of the cargo that's going to be coming ab- aboard from the, the manifest that was, you know, given to them by Hester Delt. And uh, there's one symbol that she doesn't understand, and, and Data's like, oh, that one, yeah, that's that's genetically modified um, plague that you're looking at right there. That's right, a, that's a right. virus that was either created or, or engineered uh, by somebody. Um, and the thing is, she's not upset. Pulaski's not upset that, you know, she's dealing with disease because disease is what she does, right? Yeah. But 20% of these things were made or engineered uh, by somebody just to see, as she put it, just to see how bad bad can be. Which is, you know, I don't know if the message there is don't mess with Mother Nature or if the message is, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, I mean, I, science just for the sake of science. I mean, we all, we all like science, certainly in the Star Trek future. But just for the heck of it, I mean, without really considering why or without considering the consequences, uh, these might be uh, – that would be a bad way to pursue stuff. I mean, you know, can I make an explosion so big that, you know, another explosion wouldn't (laughs) stop it? Yeah, let's find out because, you know, science. ah, You know, right. Um, right. So I I thought her uh, I thought her message there was kind of interesting. Uh, It's a good point. But I also was thinking that this is her interpretation of that. You know, her job at this point, she, she's new to the job and she has come in to do this one specific thing, which is to get these plague samples out of here and keep the Enterprise safe while they're transporting them. Wait a minute. You think what? that's the only reason she's on the Enterprise? We are without a ship's doctor at this point. No, 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 no. no. I, mean, I mean, for the purpose of this story, oh, okay, the, yeah, the, yeah. Her, her mission or her job on this particular mission is to do that. Right. Um, so she is interpreting what the intention was of, you know, whomever, whatever the process was to genetically tinker with those samples that they have on board. Right. We don't know. We, I, the, there, are, there are things that are done in the pursuit of hard science just solely because you're trying to get from point A to point B or to point C and maybe one of those side effects is not a desired side effect and then you have to kind of come up with a new science to <laughs> to take care of the bad science that you just propagated. Mm-hmm. So I, I get it. I mean, I, and this is a point that we have seen before. I mean, we could even go back to Miri if we accept that one of the messages of Miri was don't mess with Mother Nature because you will only have this horrible post-apocalyptic world to deal with if you mess around with things you don't understand. Right. We don't know how much or how little these scientists dealing with this plague understood or didn't understand. We don't know how hard they were working to try to cure and resolve this thing and maybe accidentally stumbled into something that was worse. Mm, and I'm not sure I agree, though, because here's the thing. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, the way they're handling the plague on Richella seems bad to me. Mm-hmm. They're sure. taking 512 samples of 512 different plagues because mm-hmm. they don't know what's going on in Richella. All they can say is it's a, it's a plasma plague, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And so they go to the CDC or um, what was it called? Odette 9. Mm-hmm. And they grab as many of these kinds of plagues as they can. Right. Right. So, I mean, this is not they are not picking up the cure to take there. 
they're picking up a bunch of stuff that may eventually lead to the cure to take there. Right, right, right. But that's what I'm saying, that, you know, whatever has been happening before to try to resolve this, simply they're unprepared. No, this is not. Wait, 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 but this has not been done to try to resolve this. They are basically a storehouse for disease, which will be used to try to solve this thing now. Right. But I mean, they're just kind of like a. It's not like they've been working on Odet Nine on cures for this thing. Odet Nine is basically just like a storage facility. It seems. No, right, right, right. Because if they were working on it, then they would just keep working on it there and send a cure rather than endangering, you know, the enterprise. Right. And apparently, all of space. That was another thing that actually kind of <laughs> yeah, bothered that, me. That's no good either. We yeah. can get to that in one second. I, I guess I'm a little confused by. I mean, you're. This is very much a Star Trek message. The whole, well, the whole—I mean, the whole pursuit of science just for the sake of science and not considering the the consequences—is is very much a, a a Star Trek kind of message, right? Oh, and, sure. And yet you Absolutely. seem to sort of be arguing against it. Which, well, no, I, I I I'm just saying that in terms of where Pulaski is coming from, yes. you know, I, it, yeah, it is great for us to establish that maybe thread in her character mm-hmm. that she's uh, she's a little distrustful that it, she's skeptical of this i i get it all i'm saying is that there may be another layer to the story if we were to kind of unspool this thread as much as we possibly could where we don't actually know why that 20 percent was genetically manufactured and we we don't know what the intention was there and we don't know how bad they were thinking it could be. So she, she's sort of... <laughs> I'm sorry. Do, do you dislike Pulaski? No, no, okay. I don't dislike Pulaski all right. at all. I think she's actually a breath of fresh air, and, right. and I'm, I'm enjoying what she's doing so far. Right. Um, yeah. All right. I, I, I will gladly defend uh, much of what Pulaski says and does. I, I think she brings uh, an interesting texture to the show. But I'm just saying that in this one instance... Where she is making a judgment call. Yeah. We don't know the full backstory of where that technology came from and why. Right. She's making a judgment call about the why when she doesn't know the why. All right. Do you want to go ahead and do the part where they're carrying all this stuff or do you want to go to something else first? Well, let's talk about that. Okay. So they got these 512 plague samples that they have to get to Richella 6, right? Right. Yeah. And LaForge says, so you can make a cure now, right? And Hester Delta's like, eh, who knows? Hope so. See you later. Assuming yeah. I don't die of one of these 512 plagues that we're carrying. <laughs> um, I like, you know, sort of that, that message of having to do what you have to do, you know, even if there's risk. Because, I mean, you, you could do like there, where there are no risks, there are no rewards kind of things. Or sometimes you have to do something scary to get to a better outcome or things like that. Mm-hmm. I will say I wasn't a bit bothered that, you know, um, he's like... So, so the whole thing starts to melt down, right? Or starts right. to, yeah. And he's, and they're like, well, we'll send it out into space. And, and Hester Delt's like, no, we can't send it into space because then it'll be a spore and eventually somebody will come across it and then they'll get sick and it'll be bad for the galaxy. Well, if they leave it there on the ship, it's going to kill everybody. And, you know, then the Enterprise is going to be floating off in space and somebody else will still come across it and they'll still catch it and it'll be bad for the galaxy. I didn't quite understand the whole, like, I mean, it was uh, MacGuffin is not the right word, but basically it was like, oh, no, implacable foe. Well, mm-hmm. why is it implacable? Ah, because we need it to be. Right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Nothing can save us unless something does, but nothing can, but something will. But it was sort of like, you know, oh, I have a solution. No, you don't. Your solution is terrible. Right. <laughs> kind of they, like, 
kind of. They, a- they, there would have, could have, should have been better approaches to this whole thing. I, I kept wondering why they didn't just keep the specimens off board. They have a tractor beam. Mm, you know, they, yeah, there are other ways to do this. Or you get every science ship you can possibly get, and you have them go to where the uh, where the spores are. Well, not the spores, but the the plague samples are being held. Yeah, because it seems even more dangerous to move them from place to place, <laughs> right. and then you got to go back to the original place to uh, to right. try to take care of it there as yeah. well. Again, why aren't you? Why are you not at the CDC like working on cures for these things as opposed to just storing them in case somebody needs you to work on a cure at one point? Well, which one right. do you need? Well, let's just take five hundred twelve. Really, five hundred twelve? Do we maybe want to narrow down a tiny bit which of these <laughs> deadly things rather than taking? Oh, I don't know, a ton of them? Right, right. And that was a big device full of plague. It was a big device full of plague. Also, I mean, and this is getting really geeky. Mm -hmm. But but I'm curious. So maybe you you take the the whole big containment thing down to Rachella's, I mean, Odette 9, right? Mm -hmm. Fill it there and then beam it up as one big unit. Right. Because right. I don't know who the curly-haired guy is running the uh, transporter. He seems really good at what he's doing, but he has to, like, beam 512 of those things into the exact spot inside right. this other thing. Right. Now, he's good. He may actually have the makings of a of a, of a transporter chief at some point. I'm not sure. I, I hope Because we'll they that. need somebody. Yeah, somebody with, like, a, somebody, I don't know, maybe somebody from Wales, somebody from England, maybe. Wait, yeah. Somebody yeah, from got- Scotland, Maybe yeah, somebody yeah, around Maybe. there. I don't know. Someplace yeah. near there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the whole the whole how we handle the plague thing. Well, starting with the fact that we're handling the plague and moving on from there, uh, struck me as kind of kind of odd. Anyway, well, and then you wanted you, you kind of wonder how much of that they could do with computer modeling because <laughs> you know Dr. Pulaski's looking at the whole thing on a computer and she's That's like, true. oh yeah, look at that part and that part and that part data. Why don't you sit down and figure this out? That's true. One of the earliest one of the earliest uses, like real uses of virtual reality that I remember hearing about is actually modeling uh, like uh, different genes and different germs and things like that. Actually giving them sort of a thing that you could that you could look at and turn around in 3D. Mm-hmm. If only mm-hmm. the enterprise had some way to make like a 3D interactive model that they could actually go in and work on this stuff and take a look at it and turn it around and maybe fall in love with it one day. Who knows? If only. Yeah. Yeah. If anyway, th- so those were a couple of the topics that I I think I've got one more later, but you've got kind of a kind of a biggish one. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we sorry, have to talk about it. Topic. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Um, we do need to talk about that topic uh, because the the scene in the conference room with the uh, command staff discussing what to do with Deanna's child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for all of what about ninety seconds of film, uh, the whole thing was such a great way to approach. The abortion debate, which I'm afraid has been raging since 1973, ever since Roe v. Wade. Um, This was sort of a a backdoor way not to preach to the audience, but rather to put a human experience on something that has grown political. And it may not be the most brilliant thing that Star Trek has ever done, but it was kind of nice to see something like that slipped into the script and of course the scene that i'm talking about they're they're sitting at the conference table and here's deanna silent through the whole thing Mm -hmm. and all you hear is these layers of voices behind her asking questions what do we do and then Worf jumping in saying you know as you pointed out in the uh in the summary well clearly we have to kill it Mm -hmm. 
you know, and finally her breaking after hearing all of this and saying, I'm going to keep it. And that silences everybody because it is her decision and it is purely up to her what happens. I, I thought that was truly a great scene, um, even again, if it's not the the most brilliant thing that Star Trek has ever done. And we got an interesting voicemail from uh, from a listener, uh, Data Logan, uh, regarding abortion and sexuality as two of the topics that progressive envelope pushing Star Trek often shied away from. In this episode, we not only have abortion brought up, but also the idea of raising children out of wedlock. And he cites the most famous example of that as being Kirk's son, David. And he asks if we are supposed to imagine a future in which abortion is even done. And if it is, how is it considered by others? You know, what is the attitude about it? And then he wonders how the future of Star Trek does value or deal with kids in single parent or no parent homes. And we, of course, have uh, a bit of a parallel with that with Wesley, you know, now being orphaned on the Enterprise, you know, with his uh, mother going away to Starfleet Medical. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so two different topics there. But um, I, we would be remiss if we didn't point out that scene with uh, with Deanna at the conference table, because it is it is a moment where Star Trek touches into a political social uh, arena, even if it's not coming down heavy handed with an important message. Uh, but it does show us a perspective on it. Well, but I mean, that you're really applauding it just for saying the words, basically, because I mean, sure. they, don't, they don't they don't actually they don't do the debate any sort of real justice, I don't think. Because, I mean, rarely is it that society is saying, no, 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 you must abort your child. And a woman says, ah, but I'll show you, I'm keeping it. Generally speaking, the uh, the argument actually, I mean, from uh, the argument, part of the argument tends to be the other way, where somebody wants to wants to uh, abort their child and, and, and various sections of society say, oh, no, 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 there are all these reasons that you should not do that. I mean, right. and so... I mean, you're giving you're giving Star Trek points for mentioning it, but I mean, really, all they're all, I mean, that really is all they're doing is well, no, but what, it, what I'm giving what I'm giving Star Trek points for doing is dramatizing the difficulty of that whole argument because every time that argument is brought up, every time it is debated, you know, politically, socially, where, wherever you may see this argument brought up, mm-hmm. it ultimately comes down to somebody saying, well. This is an individual's decision. This is a person's decision, whether you agree with it or not. Star Trek dramatized that moment. They dramatized, they got you into the head of Deanna Troy, mm-hmm. who is the person hearing opinions on other side with people who really have no say. <laughs> you know, yeah, you could make an argument that there is a uh, uh, a security issue that Worf should be aware of and he should express to his captain. And then you've got the medical opinion of um, Dr. Pulaski saying, hey, this is weird, but there's nothing that tells me that this is a threat. Mm-hmm. So it, what I like about that scene is that you're able to. You're able to put the viewer into the position of the person around whom the debate is swirling. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, I feel like this is an argument where you can have a lot of detachment. I mean, certainly here we are, Ken, you and I, two men, 
who mm-hmm. will not be in that position. True. <laughs> you know, and when you and I, if you turn on, you know, C-SPAN or a news show or a debate show or whatever, and you see other people having this argument, the argument then becomes very detached. And it, and it simply becomes, well, I'm going to raise these moral points and I'm going to raise these medical points and blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't come back down to the individual who is actually in the position of having to make that decision. So whether or not Deanna makes a decision to keep that child or not, mm-hmm. we had to come back to a point in that drama, in that scene where it becomes about her and it stops being about the people around her. That's why I applaud the scene, not because of the decision that was made and and not because, you know, we are tying it to a specific, uh, uh, you know, moment that we can parallel in 20th slash 21st century moral argumentation. That's what I like about that scene. So, yeah, just wanted to clarify that. Okay. And now I feel the need to clarify something as well. I'm yeah, sure. I'm fine with her decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, just, it doesn't yeah. seem like the most. Um, I, I, it doesn't seem like the bravest treatment of the debate. If we're going to say that this is a treatment of that debate, because she made what a number of people would say would be. I'll put it this way: affiliates mm-hmm. weren't going to get letters about the fact that she decided to keep her child. Right. 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 I mean, they. Yeah. I mean, there is nothing easy about bringing up. And so you're right. Kudos to them. There's nothing easy in the late 80s, you know, about bringing up abortion as a topic on a, you know, Saturdays at six on Channel 17 kind of show, you know. (laughs) Right. right. There's nothing easy about that. But if there is anything easy about it, they did it the easy way. They did it the easiest way. They they have taken this very confrontational uh, um, topic and done it in as non-confrontational way as possible. Now, I'm fine Mm -hmm. with that. I mean, that's cool. Mm -hmm. I just don't know it. It's sort of like, I don't know. It's cool. Yes. Yay. Well, here's the thing. We we know what couldn't, we know what couldn't happen on the show. What couldn't happen on the show is the attempt to actually remove this fetus to abort this child. Right. And, and then suddenly it becomes like it continues to grow on its own. It, it develops into a child. We couldn't have that, you know, <laughs> that's a good point. because because that's what it would have been. You know, it, the, the, the the plot here is partially driven by that character of Absolutely. the child. So, yes. so the child has to live at some point. Otherwise, well, they would have made a huge mistake. Uh, what with that plague being on board? Yeah. So it's yeah. crazy. It's yeah. All right. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Well, let's talk about the other. I think we both way clarified our points. I think we did. Okay. Way, way clarified. Good. Like like Like, a fine butter. Like butter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about that other character thread there about uh, Wesley being adopted by the crew, which I thought was a little strange. Hmm. Um, You know, as far as I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, this isn't the high seas in the 17th century even though Star Trek exhibits a a naval tradition. Mm -hmm. And I kept wondering, does Starfleet have rules about this? Uh, Wesley, I think, is 16 in this. Right. He He, would be because he just tested in the second half of season one. He just tested to uh, go to Starfleet, and he was just about to turn 16 when that happened. Right, right. Right. And, um, And I wondered, you know, is that really good enough to have a crew with other responsibilities volunteer for this duty of raising 
this child. You know, um, I, I I get that we kind of put a button on Deanna's loss of Ian by having her as a part of Wesley's life by right. the end of it, when everybody is assembled there on the bridge. And we also have Worf and Riker in there. And I felt uh, something about that struck me as very strange. It's sort of like, it's sort of like if a kid is working as an actor today and then just the parents are gone and the producer steps in and he's like, uh, OK, I'll watch after the boys work and you, the director, you'll watch after his education <laughs> and the key grip. You'll tuck him in at night and the first assistant camera uh, you will see to his emotional growth. Right. And you just go down the list and uh, there, there was just something really odd about that. Um, well, how else are you going to write it, though? I mean, your, your, your two options were either he's almost old enough, so let's go ahead and keep him here, or you have to replace Gates McFadden with another actress playing Crusher. Mm -hmm. Because that's really what this comes down to, is Will Wheaton's not leaving Star Trek at this point. Right. Who who knows if he ever will. Will Wheaton's not leaving Star Trek, but, you know, Gates McFadden is. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but, you know, we've suspended disbelief on... Space hippies, we've suspended the belief on there's just this guy who kind of floats around and he can phase in and out of time. We we suspended a lot of disbelief. A 16-year-old staying on a ship of 1,000 people by himself with a bartender to look after him, too, don't forget. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, he, he, course, he does have a course, bar yeah. that he can go to and hang out. <laughs> it's not like he's being left on the street for crying out loud. No. So, so in the future, we're just like child emancipation. Yeah, is, is no problem. You're just like, hey, I'm just going to do this thing on my own. As See, this long, is why it was as long as there was a good bar for him to go to. <laughs> <laughs> what is that wrong? Hey, speaking of which, by the way, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Guinan is talking to Crusher. Guinan actually is the guidance counselor here. Totally in this yeah. episode, and everybody's going through saying, you know, okay, well, Worf, you'll tuck him in, and you'll and Data, you'll look after his studies, and Riker, you'll just be sort of surrogate dad. Mm-hmm. Um, slash big brother. I don't, I really did wasn't actually clear on what it was that Riker was going to be for him, but you know, everybody had a job. Guinan's actually his guidance counselor. She's the one who basically tells him, I mean, what would you say? Like, it's not follow your bliss exactly, but I mean, there's her talk with him about doing what's expected versus doing what's right for him. Mm-hmm. is actually kind of a neat lesson on a number of levels to me. And that's whether you were talking about, you know, your studies, like, you know, Dad wanted me to go into the family business, but I wanted to be a singer or, you know, dad wanted me to, you know, be a hitman just like him. But I wanted to be a lawyer, <laughs> you know, right. yeah, that I mean, happens. there's kind of like, you know, whether you're talking about your studies or your careers all the way up to. And we talked about this with uh, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. We both know somebody who was raised by racists. And while they may mm. not have said and we want her to be a racist, too, that was certainly the expectation. And she broke out of that. I mean, same thing goes with sexuality. I mean, there's she's giving him this like great talk of like, look, there is what everybody thinks you're going to be, but what is it that's actually right for you? And I and right. I thought that was actually a really a really you know fantastic fantastic moment. Uh, everybody should have a bartender as good. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean that that discussion is, uh, and I, I think we'll come back to it in the wrap up. It, it is tempered with the idea of knowing when to make that decision. Mm-hmm. You know, knowing when it's right to think of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a cool moment, and and yeah, thank goodness uh, Wesley can. If he's feeling alone on the ship, he can always just stumble into a dark bar <laughs> and uh, have a chat with Guinan. 
To me, the message of this episode is obvious. Children are nothing but trouble. Let us see what messages John and Ken took away. All right, Ken, we've found a lot to talk about in today's episode. And before we before we bring it all home, wrap it all up for our listeners, we want to do uh, one thing that, uh, you know, we always like to hit upon one topic, which is how the episode holds up. Mm-hmm. And so much changed between season one and season two. We kind of got a fresh start. So you tell me, good sir, does this episode hold up? Um, I always knew that Star Trek The Next Generation was going to be difficult for me to do because I can't really separate myself from the fact that this is my series. This is this is my Star Trek. There, there are things about this episode I don't like. I mean, the fact that the plague is the plague because it's the plague and we have to carry this plague because we need a plague on the ship. It mm-hmm. really doesn't make sense that there should be a plague there. It doesn't make sense that they're taking as much as they are taking. It doesn't make sense that they can't get out of danger once they get into danger, except, you know, uh, through uh, the magic of this magic kid, mm-hmm. who is also the cause of their problems. Um, all of that said, though, we're, we're, we're laying a lot of groundwork for what's to come. I mean, we've, we've got Riker's beard, which I mean, I, which I mean, while it may be a joke, I mean, also does show a more mature character. In a way, he is no longer my Lord Blackbeard. Now he's got a beard, so he's, you know he's. he's mm-hmm. um, Wesley's not quite as dumb as he had been. We're 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 getting the Guinan thing. We're getting the Ten Forward thing. We're kind of fleshing out the Enterprise itself more with that. Um, it's a good beginning to season two. It's definitely a good break from sort of the hokiness that was season one. Is it the best story in the world? No, it's not the best story in the world. It's not the worst story in the world either. That was Code of Honor or Miri or Cat's mm. Paw. I mean, there have been a lot of stories <laughs> right. that are worse as right. far as Star Trek goes. So I would say it holds up. I'm liking the look, as you pointed out. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm liking the feel as well. I know you hated the scene in the turbo lift, but everybody feels nobody felt quite as goofy or reactionary as they had in the past. So. Is this the episode that you sit somebody down in front of for the first time? No, but I mean, is it is it a fine episode? Sure, I think it holds up, especially if you're a fan of the series. You're starting to see things get better. Um, anyway, that's my feeling. What about you? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, you brought up Code of Honor, and and we could point to other episodes in season one where it just feels like they're they're trying to go a little further, trying to be a little more outrageous and and put it in your face as to what is new and crazy and weird and alien about Star Trek. Uh, but I like the fact that we opened season two with an episode that just takes place on the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, usually you get to that later in the season where they need to save money and they just do a show where you can use existing sets. Mm-hmm. Um but I like that we open this way and we get to just focus on the characters that are there. Um, so the changes that are going on feel very welcome. You know, I, I think the actors are good. I think the characters are good. Um, I, you know, the, at, the, at the same time, you are mm. welcoming in new viewers, though. I mean, the, the, oh, yeah, because you're yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. well, they sort of adopted Wesley at the end mm-hmm. of this episode. Well, they sort of adopted Wesley at the end of Encounter at Farpoint as well. 
Well, yeah, but his mother was still there. I still feel like that this is like a weird, you know, it's the, the cabin boy whose, you know, parents died at an early age. And now he just gets raised on this ship. And that's yeah. all he ever knows. Okay, like, that's very that, odd. That part is bizarre. But the whole conversation about Wesley while Wesley is in the room between Riker and Picard. Mm-hmm. This is a retread, honestly, of that scene. I mean, and I don't mean it in a bad way, not in the same way that the Naked Now was a retread of the Naked Time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, this is a retread of that scene. I mean, it, it felt very familiar because we've practically had it before. So I don't want to say that they're actually restarting the whole series with, with the season two opener. You might be able to make an argument that they are, though. Hey, we're introducing the Doctor. Hey, we're introducing this new set. Hey, we're introducing the fact that we're going to have this precocious kid on board. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're mm-hmm. kind of they're, – they're not exactly hitting the reset button, but they are sort of – it's almost like they're, 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 they're uh, trimming away a lot of the fat. And, yeah, this and saying, yeah. all right, so so if you watched last season, good. We're glad to have you back. If you haven't watched before, hey, look who we are. And and luckily you've got sort of a, a better introduction in that way. I apologize yeah. for interrupting you, but no, no, no. That, that's a good way to put it. Um, I, one other thing that I don't know if you noticed because I don't know what uh, version of the show you're watching, but it is way darker. Uh, just the look of the show, um, and, and that changes from time to time. It actually looks great in HD. So um, I I watched it both in standard def and in high def, and uh, we get a bit more texture and shading in this which i know that i kind of picked apart the first season for many of those episodes just looking really blown out and overlit um but at least all these uh points that i'm making is something different this is something to change it up a little bit Mm -hmm. and i like that i think they did it well and they did it confidently that's what i like about this episode um so unfortunately the problem with this episode for me is the drama it feels very manufactured you know, we have an A plot and a B plot that, of course, dovetail because you can see it coming from a mile away. And, you know, those two things were literally brought together just to confuse the crew and add a little tension. And in the end, it's kind of inconsequential. Like, OK, well, both these problems happened and they're related and then both the problems go away. Mm-hmm. Um I, I actually, you know, I, I do like that we get to give Deanna an emotional scene other than just reading others' emotions. Uh, I thought, you know, she did well many times in this show. But, yeah, that that's why I'm really on the fence about this holding up or not. It, 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 it's fine. It's not great. Um, but the things that happen in it that I like, I liked a lot. What's interesting to me, though, is it feels like you're anticipating and, you know, timeline, timeline, blah, blah, blah. It feels to me like Mm -hmm. you're anticipating what's to come because we've never had, with the exception of um, whatever the episode was with Remick and then Mm -hmm. later Conspiracy, Mm -hmm. with the exception of that, we've never had anything carry over in any Star Trek ever. We might be revisited by something like in the cartoon, we went back to the Shoreleaf planet and we welcome back Harry Mudd like twice in the original, well, once in the original series and then once in the cartoon. Right. Otherwise, we don't have carryovers. And so for you to say, well, this is inconsequential because it happened and then it was done. Well, so far, that is almost every episode of Star Trek. And so I'm wondering if you're if you're not champing at the bit to get to the parts where, you know, 
Major Barrett Roddenberry says last week on Star Trek The Next Generation. No, no, no. I, I mean, I, I'm talking about with this specific episode, with this particular episode. You know, mm-hmm. again, that, that's what I mean about the drama being manufactured, just in terms of a, a show that is created. We do have this bit where Deanna has this um, this reconciliation after the the entity goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, at least we get to kind of resolve her emotional connection to the child in some way. But again, it's like th- then they're back on the bridge and it's the sort of business as usual. Well, this happened and it's done now. Goodbye. Yeah. Um, and same thing with the plague. Like, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm assuming we'll never hear about plasma plague again, at least not in this context. So, yeah, I, I honestly wasn't trying to think ahead to any other uh, any other episode. Well, no, I, didn't, but, I didn't think you were trying to. I'm just wondering mm-hmm. because, I mean, this has just been I mean, this has been a hallmark of Star Trek. Stuff happens and, mm-hmm. you know, by the mm-hmm. end of it, a slap on the back. Wing to the camera, <laughs> right? On Freeze the next frame. mission, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of it. Actually, I, I do yeah. kind of like the fact that they get to. Although Jordy should have known this, but I do like the fact that they get to Rachelis, and he's like, "So you're going to be able to cure this, right?" And you know, <laughs> the, the guy from Rushmore is like, "I don't know, right? <laughs> Hopefully, right. yeah." I yeah, got 512 tries. Yeah, that was realistic, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Which is kind of neat. Yeah, all's. Yeah. It's not all's well that ends well. It's just you know, it ends. So if it just ends, Ken, yeah. do we do we have a message here? Um, well, there were the ones that I that I whatever that message was to 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 crush her, you know, about about doing what's right for you, not just what's expected by other people. I mean, that feels to me like it certainly won. Yeah. Uh, as simple as it is to say, the whole where there are no risks, there are no rewards thing. I guess. Uh, the don't mess with Mother Nature. I don't know. We had the debate on that. I mean, there are there are things that you can pick out of it, but no, I don't think there's like a whole like one big message in the whole thing. I don't think. What about you? Yeah, I I, I still don't think don't think that the uh, don't mess with Mother Nature thing was really a, a point. It, it, no. it was an it was an interesting trait for Pulaski to set her aside from Data, who's looking at things just purely analytically. You know, so uh, so I like that. But I, I do think that there is a, a very interesting parallel here with Ian and Wesley. Wesley gets the speech from Guinan. Somehow, sometimes you have to know when to behave selfishly or for others. And and Ian, Ian is doing the same thing. Ian, as an entity, is curious and decides to manifest himself as this boy and then realizes that he is a problem, so he has to go away. So he's acting, one could say, selfishly at first. I'm just imposing myself on this crew to find out what makes them tick. But then this is a problem, so even though it will hurt people around me, I'm going to go away. Um, And Wesley, you know, not in quite as dramatic a terms as Ian disappearing, Wesley is going through this decision-making process about will he uh, decide to do what he wants to do or what others expect out of him. Um, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was a nice point. I would still temper the idea of acting selfishly or acting for others uh, with the idea that you have to decide when is the right and when is the wrong time to do that, which is what Guinan was trying to get across to, uh, to Wesley. So at the end of the day, that's probably the the most interesting takeaway from this show. I kind of wish that we knew more about that entity. 
that became Ian. Hmm. You know, like, yes. How, how advanced is that thing really? And are there more of them? And is that how they experience the world or or the universe by by becoming a thing I, on a planet, on a ship, wherever? And then that's what gives them knowledge. And then is that knowledge passed on to others of their kind? I mean, there, there's a lot of good questions there about that. But clearly, it is a thinking and feeling and empathetic creature. Yes. That can do that and then decide to go away. So. I, I want to see it in Alien versus Predator. <laughs> like Alien versus Predator versus Tinkerbell. I think would be right. uh, would be the movie that I'd be looking for. And if they could all fight Godzilla, that would be awesome too. Some there there will be a fan film, I'm sure, before too long. <laughs> no doubt. So uh, so season two just beginning. Uh, we are of course sailing straight into it next week with where silence has lease. Some of the music formation log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I think it is very cool that Whoopi said she wanted to be on Star Trek, and got to be on Star Trek. In other news, I want to be on The View. And Transmission. <laughs>